News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Do you appreciate silence? I know I do. I love just sitting in silence because I think it gives you an appreciation for how busy life truly is. So when I have a moment to maybe read my book on the couch, no TV, no music, nobody home, oh, you better believe I'm going to sit there and appreciate it. Mm-hmm. To me, silence signifies you know being at peace. That's just how it makes me feel. But scientifically, there's also the actual question of can silence be heard? Is it actually a sound or is that just how we perceive it? Well, Shayla Love is a freelance science journalist who's written about this in Scientific American and joins us now to talk about it. Shayla, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Is silence a sound? Well, this new study seems to suggest that it is. And so the question was whether or not we actively hear silence or whether silence is just the absence of noise. And so this this study suggests that it is something that we're actively perceiving. Okay, so it's not like if a tree falls in the forest. It is actually a noise that we we perceive. Exactly. And so this is a bit paradoxical because when we think about hearing and you think, what is what does it mean to hear? It's a sound wave that's entering your ear. Um, but these scientists put um, a bunch of people, a thousand people through these si- uh, silence illusions to test whether or not the brain actually perceives silence in the same way that it does noise. And they found that it does. Okay. So I guess it's interesting then because when you don't hear anything, any big noises, it also feels like other noises kind of get amplified, don't it? Like what you don't hear also gets amplified. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the best the best way to understand, understand this is maybe to think about one of the illusions. Um, so there are particular illusions that can occur when uh, we listen to noises. One is called one is more. And that's when there are two shorter separate notes that are played followed by a single extended note. The single extended note sounds longer. So that's like if I say beep, beep, and then beep, we always think that the one tone sounds longer. And this has to do with the way that we perceive noise. We think that things are um, segmented out into events. And so we think that the longer one is longer. And the same thing happened with silence. And so this just goes to show that the way that our mind is perceiving these gaps is the same way that it's actively perceiving actual noises. Okay, that's so interesting. So is this new research then that is being done? Like we're still learning more about how our brain perceives these things? Perceiving silence, yeah. And I think one of the reasons that we're still learning about this is that psychologists are really interested in event segmentation, which is how we perceive noise. But the idea of perceiving silence was sort of not something that psychologists were looking super closely at. It took um, a collaboration between philosophers and cognitive psychologists to tackle this question together, which is why they're, you know, they really came up with these science illusions, the silence illusions for the first time. Okay. So does it differ between people then, or is the brain processing that the same way for everybody? Um, I think there's some variability between people, so not everybody responds to these illusions, even with noise, in the same way. But the same number of people responded to this silence illusion that uh, that responds to the same illusion when it's done with sound. So the idea is basically that um, your brain wouldn't create this illusion if it wasn't actively segmenting silence and listening to it in the same way that it listens to actual. Right. And we we appreciate silence, though, don't we, Shayla? Like, do you appreciate silence? Oh, I totally appreciate silence. I live in New York City, and silence is a precious oh. commodity, especially <laughs> if you're reading or writing or working. 
Um, and I, something that I love about these findings is that um, even though we know that technically when you're hearing, or it felt like when we were hearing, there should be something entering your ear, we all sort of know the experience of how precious silence can be, and not just when you're out of a busy noise environment, but there are moments like right after uh, like a piece of music ends um, when silence feels really loud, or let's say like the awkward pause in a conversation, those moments of silence feel really, you know, loud. So is the only word. Yeah. Like we, we even say that silence can be deafening. Um, or so golden. We always we say have, silence is golden. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have these sort of perceptual experiences where silence feels like something. And so this is just one of the first pieces of evidence that we have that shows that actually cognitively, that's really true. And I think it validates the use of silence in um, things like art or music or theater in, in particular, where there's gaps in dialogue and you feel this, you know, just like really heavy, big silence. We, like we've all had that experience. And so I think this really just sort of justifies that thing that we've already been feeling. Well, I feel much better now for how I appreciate silence, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> It's not yeah. my imagination. I am appreciating that silence, right? Sounds like lots of people do. Yeah, and another thing that I love about this study is that it gives us some tools or it, it sort of paves the way to think about other kinds of absences, which is an interesting cognitive and philosophical question to ask. So silences are the absence of noise, but there are other things that philosophers have been interested in, like shadows, which is the absence of light, or holes, which is sort of the absence of matter surrounded by other matter, like a donut hole. There's a hole in the center of a donut. Is there something there? Does the hole exist? Or can... Is it just the absence of donut? Um, and so this this study kind of gives us the tools to think about how can we test these seemingly abstract questions, but using the tools of cognitive science um, to answer questions about the way we perceive the world. Well, you've given us something to think about this morning for sure. Shayla, thank you. <laughs> thank you. That's Shayla Love, freelance science journalist, written a piece in Scientific American, uh, essentially about the sound of silence. Do we hear it? How does our brain process it? Clearly, some people process it differently, but it is there. It is a sound. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. Some people also like it more than others. I am one of the people in my family who love it. Love silence. Love it. Don't turn anything on just want to sit in silence sometimes because I find that like restorative. I find it healing, but not everybody else is like that, right? This is Mornings with Simi. A long list of shows that I appreciated in the last year. Not all of them were recognized with Emmy nominations yesterday, but let's break down what was our show contributor, Scott Chances, with us. Good morning, Scott. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. I do disagree with quite a bit that's on this list. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, I want to get into it because I know that you're a big TV fan and I am a big TV fan and we agree on a lot of things, but not all things. But uh, I think probably the most notable thing from this year's Emmy nominations is that uh, this is a record-breaking year. This year has made the record. HBO got a record for the most amount of nominations for one show in a single season. And it's probably no surprise to people that that show is... Succession. I love that show. It was so good. I'm sad that it's over, but it was so, so good. 27 nominations. 
It, yeah, I don't disagree with anybody who got a nomination. I don't know how they're going to decide, though, some of the acting categories when some of the categories have like three people from Succession in it. For instance, Best Actor in a Drama Series has Kieran Culkin, Jeremy Strong, and Brian Cox in it. I don't know how. Good luck, Jeff Bridges, Bob Odenkirk, and Pedro Pascal, because there's totally. the other people who are in that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other lead, Sarah Snook, she also has a Best Actress nomination. So it's a different category, Crazy. but all of the main players. But Simi, it's interesting that you mentioned that because yes, three people from the same show. But if we also look at best supporting actress, I don't know. Who, a, I don't know how you do in that in a comedy series. Yeah. It's way down there. Four nominations from the White Lotus. And, Four. And does, it, does it deserve? Like I liked White Lotus. I preferred the first season to the second season myself. Second season was a little harder for me to get through, but did it deserve all of this attention? See, this is an interesting thing. And again, you're the only person that I've talked to who, like me, thinks that the first season of White Lotus was better than the second really? season. Yeah, I, th- I like the second season. I thought the first season was incredible. Apparently, Bianca, our producer, agrees as well. But uh, I think what made the White Lotus so great was just how different it is yeah, from guess. all of the, t- the stuff on TV. Uh, other shows that got a, lomina- a lot of nominations, excuse me, The Last of Us, uh, the first TV show based on a video game to clean up at the Emmys. I've, I've heard not, I haven't watched it, but I've heard nothing but good things about that. People loved it show. So the best drama series, let me just read through the category here for you. Andor, great show. Star Wars. Yeah. Better Call Saul. Amazing. People love that show. The Crown. The last season, I didn't even finish it. I didn't think it was very good. Okay. House of the Dragon. I get that it was popular, but I didn't hear anybody say this is like the best show I've ever seen. It's definitely not in the same league as Succession. So why is it in this category? I watched better shows last year than House of the Dragon. Uh, Last of Us, Succession, White Lotus, and Yellow Jackets. And I know I hear this from Jill Bennett all the time. She loves Yellow Jackets. Yeah, a lot of people loving Yellow Jackets. I couldn't get into it. It just feels too like lost to me. So I'm there are other shows like some of them. I'm not sure why they're here. Like The Crown, it's just there because in previous years it was nominated. I guess. Yeah. And House of the Dragon. I'm like, what? Because Game of Thrones was nominated. It got. I don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. But let's run down. I agree with you on a lot of those points. A lot of the shows that I really liked were in the best uh, comedy series. Like, and I'm not sure if you've watched this, Barry is one of my favorite shows of the year. Yeah, my husband watches Barry. He loved it. It's so great. If you like that dark comedy, sort of White Lotus thing, it's really good. And then my favorite show, The Bear. I love The Bear. Bear is a great show. The Bear is a great TV show. If you like Ted Lasso, which is also nominated in the best comedy uh, department, The Bear is like Ted Lasso, but real. Okay, but is this for Ted Lasso season three? I assume that it is. Yes. Because, okay. Yeah. I mean, season three was not as good as the previous two. Yeah, and again... I don't don't view that as one of the best comedy series of the past year. It was good. Was it amazing? No. And I I think that it's like, well, it's had all these these nominations, and it was this really groundbreaking work at the beginning. The beginning. But now it's just kind of... It's like we have to nominate it because it's there, and we need to fill out the category, but really we know that the bear is going to win this. Okay, well, that's a bold statement. That's great that you <laughs> But you know what? I watched some really great shows. For instance, did you watch Poker Face? No, I have it. It's like on my, Loved when I say it. I have it, it's original, like on my list. Original, kind of modern day Columbo, 
so original, so great. I'm like, that's a show that I, I know there's a one nomination for Natasha Lyonne for the, for best actress in a comedy series. Would have loved to have seen more for that one because that was brand new, totally original, just different. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I love, I love things that feel different. How about um, Abbott Elementary? Did you get into that? I've heard nothing but good things about Abbott Elementary. Same thing, same thing. And Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, my wife watches that. She thought it was fantastic. Yeah, I haven't been able to get into that one. Yeah, and this one is on the list too. Wednesday. I didn't I haven't been able to get into Wednesday. Me neither. The Adams Family spin-off. So apparently some division in the Emmy nominations. And as you were mentioning before, I always do this when the Emmy nominations come out. I go through and I check all these shows. There's some that I haven't even heard of. And I'm like, this is great. I have some binge watching to do over the next couple of months, which as we talked about, or as you mentioned a little earlier with John Strait, we might need. We would have you watched The Diplomat, by the way. My again, my wife has. I haven't. Okay, I loved it. The Diplomat on Netflix. Uh, Carrie Russell. She was nominated for Best Actress in a Drama Series. I thought it was fantastic. That's the only nomination that I see that that show got. I just wish that, like, you know, you talk about this with your friends. You talk about it with family members. You're constantly talking about, oh, I just watched this. This is good. Have you seen this? And can you recommend something for me? And I feel like that isn't reflective. Like, what we're actually all talking about isn't necessarily reflected in what we see with the Emmy nominations. That's a really great point. Maybe we need to have a People's Choice Emmys for television. I would agree with you. And I'll tell you right now, some of the, the, the categories, like the small nominations here, I would tell people watch Poker Face. Yep. Watch The Diplomat. Watch Bad Sisters. Okay. I haven't heard of that. And Sharon Horgan, the lead actress, got a nomination for that. Fantastic. You will enjoy it so much. Okay. Some good things to put on the list uh, for the Emmys and definitely Succession if you haven't seen it. Forget (laughs) all the other hype. Watch those shows. You will love it. Scott, thank you. Sure thing. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun this morning. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Simmy. Does that song just, like, get you dancing? Uh, yes. Yes. (laughs) The Bee Gees' second career. I see somebody's written an entire book about the Bee Gees, published in the UK. I was reading a review. It sounds like just a great story. They're fascinating. Um, The whole... The whole long saga of the Bee Gees and all the different things that happened. And what, there's only one left, right? Uh, yeah. The handsome one, as they said. But uh, anyway, no, great uh, performers. Are you talking about Barry Gibb? St- yeah. Yeah, Barry Gibb. Yeah, st- who else, right? The hair alone? That's Just true. Incredible. Magnificent. But anyway, they, yeah, when I was a music critic a century ago, it was right at the height of the disco era, and the Bee Gees were, like, incredible. There's a, a cover story in Forbes magazine, the big business magazine in the United States, with all three Bee Gees on it as a, as a major international corporation. And my favorite line in the piece was, it, it advised younger readers... Um, that, you know what? No, Fortune, not Forbes. Uh, you know what? They're bigger than the Beatles. <laughs> yeah. Like, who? Do you have to tell people who the Beatles were? Anyway, enough. Ah, oh, yes, we reminisce. Okay, let's talk some politics this morning. We're still getting more information coming out about, you know, things that impact BC out of the Premier's conference in Winnipeg. Oh, and wow. I thought this was really interesting about what the Premier had to say about Surrey policing. Yeah, so I'm listening to, because it's my job, to the hour-long media conference that ended the Premier's conference, and a lot of it is, you know, sort of not not exactly the stuff of headlines. It's Premier's posturing and Premier's wishing for things and Premier's talking to their home audience. And in the middle of all this, I hear David Eby say, um, 
Quote, we need to know which way the federal government is going on contracting policing for the RCMP because the current situation is not sustainable for British Columbia. And I go, wow, well, it was worth listening to an hour-long press conference to hear the Premier say yeah. that because he dropped a very big clue, I think, about where the British Columbia government is headed on the long-running debate over policing services in Surrey. The council wants to go back to the RCMP. The government is vetting the council's report on that. And the premier, well, he knows what's in the report because he's signed the non-disclosure agreement, but he can't tell us. But he can tell us that he's very concerned about where Ottawa is headed on RCMP services across the country because the current situation isn't sustainable. Right. And so that's really interesting because you have to read between the lines here of what yeah. he's saying. But also, he clearly has indicated that he's been talking about this with other premiers. Yeah, yeah that was the other thing he said. He said, he really, you know, one of the reasons these premiers' conferences are good things, other than, of course, you get to see Winnipeg, is... You know, sitting around the table with the other premiers, you're hearing, hey, we've got a problem with the RCMP too, you know, because, because Manitoba weighs in and the premier of Manitoba, who's the chair of the conference, said, yeah, you know, we're, is Ottawa really serious about maintaining local policing services? Or are they trying to get out of it? And if they're getting out of it, does Manitoba have to set up its own provincial police force? And Alberta weighs in and goes, yeah, so you sort of wonder the way Ottawa's handling the RCMP with all the vacancies and staffing problems and funding problems, whether hmm, maybe they're just trying to phase out the RCMP in slow motion. So all of a sudden, there's a national discussion about premiers asking Ottawa, please tell us what your long-term plan is for the force, because the contract is up in the next decade. And if provinces are going to have to replace the RCMP as the local policing services in towns and communities and cities and provinces that don't have it, uh, they have to get going right now on developing those forces. So all of a sudden, this little issue that it just seems here in BC, like this long-running battle between the provincial government and Surrey Council, no, it's a national issue, actually. And uh, again, I say the, the West... The Premier's Conference in Winnipeg was worth it just to get that on the national radar screen because it is important that Ottawa shares its real thinking about the future of the force. And frankly, if there's any doubt about whether or not Ottawa is committed to maintaining the force for local policing across the country, if there's any doubt about that, British Columbia can't approve Surrey's plan to go back to the RCMP when maybe the RCMP doesn't even have a future in Surrey or anywhere else. Well, this is what I've been wondering. Like, we've known this about the federal government for a long time, that they would kind of like to get out of local policing. I yeah. wonder, Vaughn, is this setting the stage then for a bigger picture announcement? Yeah, so the buzz over here in Victoria, and is the rumor mill ever wrong, uh, is <laughs> that we're going to get a... Irony. We're going to get a news conference next Wednesday uh, with Mike Farnworth, and we're going to get a technical briefing ahead of time, and then a news conference. And Farnworth is going to tell us the provincial government's verdict on Surrey's report. So Surrey sends in a report 
saying we we're going to stick with the uh, we want to go back to the RCMP and here's why we don't want to go ahead with the Surrey Policing Services and here's our reasons and they made the province sign a non-disclosure agreement don't put that aside for a moment um, I think the premier says he's read it I think we know from what he said yesterday what he thinks of it in any event we're getting the announcement Interesting, Simi, the announcement is here in Victoria, in the Legislature Press Theatre. Oh. Uh, we're teasing uh, Farnworth that he's not making the announcement in downtown Surrey, uh, where there'd be a mob with tar and feathers, whatever he announces. Uh, but yeah, the betting line now, I think, fairly is, and thanks to the Premier's big hint yesterday, the province is going to say... Uh, Surrey's report doesn't measure up. Get on with uh, Surrey Police Services. S stick with them. Don't try to go back to the RCMP. Your plan doesn't work. And who knows if that'll be the last act in this long-running saga, which seems to have more episodes than one of those streaming services on Netflix where they're yep. trying to string it out to a sixth or a seventh or an eighth season. Now, Vaughn, the Premier also had something to say about that Bank of Canada rate increase. I thought this was interesting. Yeah, so Tuesday he said he, he, he acknowledged that a rate increase was likely on Wednesday and he called it the Day of Dread. So it arrived yesterday and the bank did indeed raise interest rates again. And the Premier asked out loud whether the bank will ever pause its apparent drive to make uh, life harder and more expensive for the neediest Canadians. He's talked about how increase in interest rates has a huge impact on people who can ill afford it. And anybody thinking of getting a mortgage or anyone who already has one, it's a good point. Uh, but what would the premier do about it? I mean, he was asked, OK, well, what's your solution on inflation? And he said, well, my solution on inflation is uh, we uh, invest more in infrastructure, uh, improve transportation in the country, uh, reduce the cost of moving goods around and reduce uh, the pressure on supply chains. Uh, which, okay, is a theory, although you might have to say, well, hmm, why doesn't the premier support the other premiers calling for the federal government to intervene and end the port strike? Because uh, on that one, he is not on the same page. Uh, his view is that, no, no, uh, the uh, workers deserve a good raise, and he's opposed to federal intervention, which, of course, is also the position of the union. Okay, so here's the other thing I'm wondering about, too. Is it Did gas prices come up? <laughs> So you listen to the other premiers, right? And, and, and often on these things, because the premiers try to get along and they try to speak with a single voice, uh, so their communiques are all unanimous. You go and they're all worried about bank interest rates. But then you listen to the premiers. So I'm listening to Premier Doug Ford, who's talking about the same problem. You know, he's very worried about interest rates as well. And it's going to be hard on people in Ontario. And he says, you know, so I look around at uh, gasoline prices. Uh, and he said, here in Manitoba, like uh, gasoline is a dollar, what, 56, I think he said, a, a liter. And, uh, you know, in Ontario, in some places, it's almost a dollar 60 a liter. And I'm going, good Lord, <laughs> I paid for a fill up here in British Columbia on the weekend and I paid almost two bucks a liter. So, you know, there's there's an area where the premiers don't agree. Ford, of course, has given people in Ontario, I think, six cents off a liter in tax rebate to lower the cost of living. You'll never hear that from David Eby. British Columbia has the highest gasoline taxes in the country. 
Uh, it has the highest gasoline prices in the country. And when David Eby talks about giving people a break on the cost of living to offset the impact of interest rates, he doesn't come out and say, well, you know, in the short term, uh, the BC government's going to give you a break and it's going to reduce gas taxes. You're never going to hear that from the BC NDP. Right. But although the, the former premier, John Horgan, talked about gas prices. Yeah, when John Horgan uh, was appalled when gas prices reached a dollar fifty a liter, and by George, he ordered an inquiry <laughs> into why it was so high, and by God, he wasn't going to stand for it anymore. And he claimed eighteen months later that the inquiry had demonstrated there was an unexplainable uh, markup of a thirteen cents a liter on gasoline prices in and around Metro Vancouver and the government's going to put a stop to it. It has not put a stop to it. Uh, I always wondered about that. I always wondered about that. Yeah, no, go ahead, Simi. I was going to say 13 cents a liter. Oh, we don't know where it came from. And then it's like, oh, look over here. There's something else over there. And I'm thinking, did we not figure out about that 13 cents a liter? What happened? Apparently, they're still working on it. They spent a million dollars on the inquiry. And, you know, the inquiry report came back. And, ah, they had proof of it, right? Now, I will also point out that the NDP government changed wrote into stone the terms of reference for the inquiry, it was not allowed to look at the impact of taxes and regulatory costs imposed by the government on gasoline prices. It was only allowed to look at other factors. So needless to say, the inquiry did not come out and say, well, hey, one of the main reasons that gasoline is more expensive here than anywhere else in North America is because the government gouges for a huge amount of taxes and regulatory changes as well. Hmm, I know. Still a, so such a mystery. Uh, Vaughn, thank you for that. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've heard of snow crabs, king crabs, uh, blue crabs, softshell crabs. But have you heard of green crabs? European green crabs are actually an invasive species. They've been causing problems on the east and west coast for decades now. But there's currently a movement to try to figure out what can be done with all these green crabs instead of freezing them and throwing them into the landfill, which is what's happening. So let's find out what can be done. I had a chance to speak with Dr. Gabriella Bratt, who's a fisheries extension specialist at the University of New Hampshire's Sea Grant program. And to start with, I asked her, what are European green crabs? Uh, green crabs are uh, little, little nuisancey, pesty uh, crabs that are invasive to the United States, and they are originally from from Europe. Okay, and are they just popping up like in North America now? How did they get here? Well, they're not just popping up in the east coast of the United States. They got here over two hundred years ago. And they came over, like a lot of invasive marine species, um, through ballast water. So way back in the 1800s when, you know, there was shipping and people came over on boats from Europe, they came in the ballast water, the little larvae. And when they dumped it in Cape Cod Harbor or something, they crawled on out and decided to make a home here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are increasingly becoming a problem here on the West Coast, too. So what do you, what do you do with them? Like, how quickly do they multiply? Very quickly. So, um, but let me backtrack a little bit. Over in um, over at the West Coast, they were introduced um, by the population of green crabs that were already on the East Coast um, through us shipping uh, seafood 
in seaweed over to, to the West Coast. And, um, but they do reproduce very quickly given the right conditions. So in this case, nice warm water um, and a long, uh, long feeding season. Um, they can reproduce uh, up to, let's see, one female can ha- carry up to 180,000 eggs. Ooh. That's one female. And sometimes they can carry two clutches of these 180,000 eggs. Um, so you can see how very quickly, even if, you know, just a, just a few percentages of that make it, right, um, you can have exploding numbers. And so what is the danger here? You, call, you said they're an invasive species there. What kind of destruction do they cause? So they're very, very good at outcompeting our native species, like our other native crabs and so on. And they're very, very good at overeating everything. So they really love shellfish. So they love bivalves like mussels and soft-shell clams and so on. And um, so, for example, one medium-sized green crab, and by medium-sized, I mean maybe, maybe three inches across the width of their, of their shell, um, can eat up to 40 mussels or clams by itself. So that's one crab. And uh, so you can imagine if they're out competing other native species for food and they're also eating everything that you and I like to eat, um, that means that a lot of fisheries, especially shellfish fisheries, are um, feeling the impact of losing their product to the green crab. Um, they also dig very well. So in order for them to get to these um, bivalves, they can dig up to eight inches. And so in a lot of our estuarine and coastal waters, they perturbate the bottom, so the substrate. So they cause erosion. They like to uh, clip eelgrass beds, which are really important nurseries and estuaries. Um, and so if they decimate those, those nurseries and uh, eelgrass beds, then we also lose potential habitat for baby flounders and lobsters and anything else that needs shelter. Wow, this sounds really serious then. So what can we do about them? Well, so um, the first thing is for everybody to become aware, right? (laughs) Um, And then one of the things that we are trying to do here on the East Coast is we are already beyond the point of, um, you know, trying to trap them out and bringing their population numbers down. We're at the point where we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with all of these crabs, all of this biomass? Can we eat them? Can we create markets um, like pet food or fertilizer or, um, you know, like a big soup company or something like that that will um, use a lot of crabs? The issue is removing a lot of the crabs from these different um, ecosystems so that other things can have a chance to recover and, um, and sort of bring up our biodiversity. And so that's some of the work that's been going on on the East Coast. On the West Coast, um, the invasion, so to speak, isn't quite as extensive yet, but it is making its way all the way up to Alaska and to you guys. Um, And so things like uh, trapping efforts and also starting to consider, is this a marketable um, uh, product? You know, even if it's not for consumption, could you make... Um, a bait for lobsters, for example, or could you make it as part of uh, fish feed or other types of pet food right. or even compost fertilizer? Are they not edible? They are edible. So one of the things that I keep telling people is that, um, you know, just because they're invasive doesn't mean that they're inedible. They're not poisonous. 
Um, the issue with them, why people aren't eating them often, is because they're small. They're not like a big Dungeness crab, for example. So picking the meat is really hard, and the shell is really hard. So processing it is virtually impossible um, because you need a lot, a lot of crabs to, you know, get even a crab cake, for example. But um, one of the things that we've been working on is figuring out how to create a soft shell market or a soft shell product like the blue crabs down south. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been, um, we figured out molting and so on and so forth and have produced, have been able to um, produce soft shell crabs during the season that they molt. And uh, we've been working with restaurants to bring them to people's dinner table. Right. That's tricky though, right? Because so, they, they have a soft shell only for a very small period of time. A very small period of time. So um, the trick is to basically hoard all the crabs that are about to molt and keep them from eating each other. And then once they molt, you have to remove them from salt water so that the shell doesn't harden. But you have to remove them from the salt water when it's just right. If it's too soft, then it's mushy. And if it's too hard, then it's really um, difficult for people to eat the whole crab, right? Because that's what most people do with soft shells. So, but once you remove them from salt water, uh, that stops the hardening process. And so you can store them in a fridge, you know, until you need to take them to market, for example, and they'll stay soft the entire time. Boy, this sounds very, very challenging. <laughs> well, I think it, it could, you know, it's worth it. Back um, in Venice, they have a, uh, a conspecific green crab, so it's not the exact same species, but they have, ha- they have an artisanal fishery there. It's, you know, several hundred years old, and they do exactly that. They go out and they fish out tons and tons of the crabs that are about to molt, hold on to them until nature does its thing, and then they harvest the soft-shell crabs and bring it to market where they can get up to 40, 50, sometimes 60 euros a pound. Um, it's quite a delicacy over there. So I'm hoping we're, that we can do something similar here. Okay, so how are restaurants taking this? Are they willing to try it out? Oh, yes, they have. Uh, At least here in New Hampshire, where I've been working, um, yeah, we have a lot of uh, restaurants who, when we can provide the soft shell crabs, because like you said, it's a little bit, you know, time consuming and uh, labor intensive. Yes. Uh, When we do do bring them to them, uh, they sell like hotcakes. They really do. Um, they, They sell out and people, you know, they do like hearing that what they're eating um, is actually, you know, a good way to help the environment. So um, they like that that kind of eco-groovy story to it. Um, the issue for <laughs> the issue for us is providing enough to meet demand. And so, since we're still sort of growing this concept, um, you know, we right now we really only have um, a few uh, harvesters who are willing to put in this, you know this energy into producing soft-shell crabs. But we do have one, especially in southern Maine, who has been able to scale up a little bit and has been providing um, some of our restaurants with, with soft-shell crab during early summer, which is when they molt. Wow. Well, it's worth a shot, I guess. Uh, listen, thank you so much for your time. Yep. Oh, you're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, e-bikes and e-scooters seem to be everywhere these days, right? It makes sense. They're great for commuters. Good option. They get people out of their cars, easy to park and store. There's a lot they have going for them. But then there's the drama that comes along with them too, right? Do they belong on the road? 
They're powered like cars and motorbikes, but they are kind of sized like bicycles. And some say they're starting to overfill the bike lanes. So they're great, right? We agree on that. E-bikes and scooters are great, but we don't just, don't just don't want them where we are. We don't want them on the sidewalk, don't want them in the bike lane. Well, where are they supposed to go? Our show contributor, Scott Chance, took a deep look at this. Most people who've ridden an e-bike or e-scooter really believe in it. Just listen to Dr. Travers, an SFU professor of sociology who's gone all in on the micromobility trend. If you were to get most people on an e-bike, they would love it. It's a much simpler way to you know, make most of our trips. Indeed, my electric unicycle has replaced 90% of the trips that I used to take by car, and it's much more enjoyable. But where do these e-bikes and scooters fit? We know they don't belong on the sidewalk. They feel like bikes, but they're powered like cars. So where do they go? I think that they, they fit with bikes, but there isn't enough space. Most of the space that we have for transportation is dedicated to cars and trucks and buses. And then you have pedestrians on the sidewalk, uh, wheelchair users and people who use other mobility aids. And then there's this tiny fringe that has been, uh, you know, very hard fought for to have separated bike lanes, safe spaces to ride, etc. And in those spaces, all kinds of micro mobility options belong, but there simply isn't enough space. Not everyone is so convinced, though. Over the last couple of days, I've taken a lot of calls and emails about this, and a lot of them sound something like this. Here's Keith from Coquitlam. I've seen people actually rent these things and then cross in the pedestrian walkway, slide into the traffic lane without even looking. And I've seen a couple of narrow misses already. So I'm thinking somebody's going to get run over on one of these things by a car. One of these people are going to hit somebody's car. The car owner would probably be on the hook for the deductible. Uh, not wearing helmets, uh, riding on the sidewalk, double riding. So maybe the issue lies in some sort of clearer regulation or legislation around these devices. Well, at least that's something that most of us can agree on. Absolutely, there should be regulations. We should be riding safely, whether we're riding a bike, an e-bike, or an e-scooter. Absolutely. They need to be licensed and regulated. I think the city bylaw and the RCMP need to need to start cracking down on the people that are misusing the bikes or and and the scooters. You would get rid of a lot of this issue if you had the rental companies that rent these scooters out that they have to sell some kind of an insurance package just for personal liability in case they hurt someone else. That was Steve from Guilford. Insurance is certainly another issue that's yet to come into play here. So what are the actual laws around e-bikes and e-scooters? I spoke to Winston Chow, the chair of traffic operations and management for the city of Vancouver to try to find out. So at this point in terms of actual, you know, regulations that are being put in place, Within Vancouver, we have specific bylaws that we've permitted the use of e-scooters. So uh, they're, they're permitted to be used uh, on our local streets. So any street without a lane line or directional dividing line and our protected bike lanes is where they're permitted. Uh, where they're prohibited is, is on our sidewalks. Uh, arterial uh, and collector streets, and of course, uh, the seawall. Okay, so we have some bylaws, but it still feels like there's something to be desired in terms of how these things are managed. Turns out Winston and other people involved in the potential legislation feel the same way, but don't expect any sort of reasonable change to come about anytime soon. We're in the process right now of collecting data. We're part of this three-year trial that's currently underway. 
We have been uh, having meetings with the, the province. 2024 will be when the pilot would technically end and we would be looking to the province to see whether this gets expanded, extended, uh, or those kinds of things. There needs to be more discussion around it before we have an opinion on it. Uh, that's that's for certain. So no real answer there, at least not yet. But perhaps the solution actually lies in our basic humanity, our need to treat each other with decency and respect. Clarence Woodsma, a city planner from the University of Waterloo, shared some insight and reminded me that these types of issues are nothing new. Before we had e-bikes, we still had lots of tensions and conflicts with regular cyclists and, and uh, automobiles in terms of sharing that limited space that we have in our cities. And I think a lot of us take for granted, you know, a concept called complete streets, for example, that uh, many cities have, have tried to adopt where, again, that whole notion of a shared common space is enshrined. So I think that's one of the key challenges, you know, regardless of whether or not they're electrified, is the fact that we have to think about sharing the space that we have. Okay, great idea, though, but are we capable of doing that? I feel like we all really like our space on the roads, right? We like our part of the sidewalk, our part of the bike lane, our part of the road, whether we're driving, walking, or biking, it seems like. So where do you think e-bikes and e-scooters should go? Let us know, Simi at cknw.com or scott at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about what happened at Vancouver City Council yesterday for a moment here. There was a motion to provide emergency shelter to extend leases for temporary modular housing, but it was voted down by the ABC majority. Now, obviously, when you hear that, you think, well, in this city with this homeless problem? Like, why would that happen? Especially when at the same time, City Council unanimously approved a bigger loan of up to $103 million to the PE for their new amphitheater. Like, yes, that is a loan, but in this case, it was just extending some leases. And so the motion on temporary shelter housing came from Councillor Christine Boyle of One City, and, and she joins us now to talk more about it. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me on. What was this motion exactly? So the um, motion called for, like you said, called for us to renew the leases on existing temporary modular housing uh, for as long as we need it and until we have the senior government funding in place to build enough permanent uh, supportive housing. There are hundreds of units of temporary modular housing whose leases will come up during the term of this council and uh, it is important, of course, I think it's important that we protect those good, dignified housing units uh, so that we don't see more people pushed into homelessness, more people sleeping in tents uh, and, and parks and on the street. Okay, so what will happen then as a result of this motion not being passed? So Mayor Sim and, and the ABC majority voted it down um, and and I can't really tell you why um, they want to build supportive housing in other parts of the uh, lower mainland and other parts of the province. Um, and I, too, think that other municipalities need to step up. But this is important housing that we have now. And this is us doing our uh, part. We're working as a good partner with the province to build supportive housing. Um, but we need to protect 
the housing we have as well and make sure that more people don't become homeless. And if we're not renewing these leases, that's exactly what we will see. We'll see more people losing their homes and and sleeping in parks and sleeping on the street. And uh, it's unacceptable. It's also a bad decision for the city. Homelessness is bad for people who are homeless. It shortens life expectancy and it increases risks uh, of all sorts of other health issues. It's hard on family members. If you know your child or your parent is sleeping outside with no safe place to go. Homelessness is also bad for business and tourism and it costs more to manage homelessness than it costs to provide supportive housing. So this was a bad financial decision by the the mayor and ABC majority as well. Okay, so what's going to happen as a result of this? And does that mean the end of those temporary modular housing units? Not not immediately. The leases come up uh, over the next four years. So I will keep pushing uh, that we renew those leases one by one as they come up um, and and we'll see how that goes. Overall, I'm concerned, though, that this sends a pretty terrible message to Vancouverites that we're not taking this crisis seriously. You know, I, I hear all the time from Vancouverites all across the city who wanted a compassionate response to homelessness, who want to see people being able to move indoors so they're not sleeping outside. Um, and as Mayor Sim and, and ABC led a decampment, um, you know, people want to see homes built uh, as the solution. Supportive housing is the solution to homelessness. Um, as the mayor was shotgunning a beer on stage this past weekend, 3,000 Vancouverites were looking for a place to sleep and the number keeps going up. So that's my concern. The The leases will come up for renewal over our term and uh, and we need to renew them. We need to protect more people from becoming homeless while we tackle all the issues in front of us. And, um, and we need a serious mayor willing to govern in order to do that job. Uh, and that's not what we're seeing so far. So, Councillor Boyle, maybe you could explain to people about these units. I remember when they were put in, they were always, they're always called temporary. They were intended to be temporary. But how do they get used? Who qualifies for them? And are we moving people through them? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I know we hear a lot of concern about SRO housing. It's, right. uh, it's not in good condition. It's not falling, it's falling apart. This is a much better housing. These buildings are typically three stories. Um, the the buildings are built to last. The temporary part of it is just the land lease, the land use. So the buildings are in in good shape and well built. The units have self contained washrooms and a little kitchenette, so um, people have dignity um, and and the support they need. And then each of the buildings also has a kind of common kitchen and eating space to build community to help uh, residents get to know one another. Um, they're run by different nonprofits, uh, and a number of them have a bit of a different focus, whether it's on Indigenous housing or housing for women. Um, they often house people who are moving straight in from the street, but sometimes people who are moving in from shelters. And uh, and it's a mix of how long people stay. Uh, a number of people have been in them since the beginning. Others 
For others, they're a kind of landing place to stabilize and reconnect with family or reconnect with health services and then move into more long-term housing uh, nearby or elsewhere. Um, But what we know absolutely is that they are a, a critical part of our housing spectrum. They're helping people move out of homelessness, uh, and they're supporting people who otherwise would have no option but to continue to be in tents and parks. So are you worried then? Are you worried now what's going to happen to these housing units? Yeah, I'm worried about these housing units. I'm worried about the people who need them. And I'm worried about um, about the mayor and ABC not taking this crisis seriously and not uh, governing seriously at a time when we need them to to be willing to step up and do the job. Well, I thank you for your time on that this morning. Thanks for having me on. Happy to come back anytime. That's Christine Boyle, Vancouver City Councillor for the party One City, talking about her concern that with this motion defeat last night, that it's going to mean that perhaps there's some something we need to worry about when it comes to these temporary modular housing units. Now, they've been around for about four or five years. Now, I think 2018, they started to be installed in some different locations. And the motion last night from Christine Boyle was to extend the leases for them because they will be coming up in the next a year or two and she said that the motion was defeated and now she's worried that that means that they're going to be arrest. like what is the plan for these temporary modular housing units now there is a report that bc housing did where they they looked at these first seven developments like this that were established and they wanted to find out what the outcomes had been like what what happened as a result of building these what happened to the residents who were in there a uh, 79% of the residents said they were previously experiencing homelessness uh, and some of the res- responses that they got from this is that 56% of survey respondents reported improvements to their physical health uh, 44% said it improved their mental health 44% also said that they had been admitted to the hospital less often as a result of having these temporary modular housing units. Um, you know, they said they were living better. They had positive interactions. 82% said they had positive interactions with their neighbors. Um, and 39% of the respondents said they had improvements in addiction issues as a result of living in these temporary modular housing units. And that's a BC housing report. You can find that online. I did. didn't take very long. Uh, but it does beg the question, then, what is Vancouver's plan for these temporary modular housing units. And I think this whole story is now going to get some legs. We'll be hearing more about it for sure. If you want to weigh in, see me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We are going to continue our discussion now on the child welfare system in this province because it's not enough to say, oh, a child was killed, someone's going to jail, so everything is fine. I mean, everything is not fine systematically over the decades, there are children who have been abused. They have not been checked on. They have fallen between the cracks. I mean, whatever terrible thing you can think of happening to a child in care, it has happened. Now, the latest being the two children horrifically abused. One was killed and the two foster parents will now spend years in jail after being convicted of manslaughter. And we know this is not an isolated case. What we don't know is how it was allowed to happen. How do social workers not visit a site for seven months when abuse is so clearly present? In fact, the representative for children and youth, Jennifer Charlesworth, called it one of the most egregious situations she has ever seen. So what we want to hear from the people in charge is, never again, and here is how we're going to fix it. Instead, we're getting generalities. 
Now, my understanding is that we are going to be speaking with the Minister of Children and Family Development, Mitzi Dean, on the show tomorrow, which would be great because I have a lot of questions, as you do. Right now, though, we are going to talk with Chief Terry T.G., who's a regional chief of the B.C. Assembly of First Nations. Chief T.G., thank you very much for being here. Uh, Good morning. We've been trying very hard to kind of keep this story in the public consciousness. Then what kind of reaction have you been getting in talking about this? Well, I think uh, uh, from the province's side is that uh, it, it took this long. It took a death of, of child in, in care uh, for many systemic uh, issues to, to finally be uh, talked about and, and perhaps potential changes in the near, near future. But um, it's sad to see it this way. Uh, but uh, as part of the First Nations Leadership uh, Council with the, my, my organization, BCFN, UBCIC, and First Nations Summer are calling upon Mitzi Dean to, to resign because this is an ongoing issue, a systemic issue. It's not only of a, a child that died in care, but also, you know, the, the, the Saunders case, uh, birth alerts, and there's just many systemic issues that need to change to make sure that our children are safe. Uh, now, what needs to change, do you think? What can the ministry do here? Well, I think, you know, having minimum standards, I mean, seven months for, for a wellness check on a child, uh, you know, th- that is inexcusable. We need to make sure that there's a vetting process, a, a very minimal amount of, of, of vetting process on food is taking care of the children. We need to make sure that there's follow-ups. We need to make sure that uh, there's enough resources for these, uh, uh, for having uh, social workers and, and having enough social workers. Uh, we need to make sure that there's enough uh, funding and resources to uh, First Nations delegated agencies and also to First Nations who take care of children. I, I think it's uh, really important to make sure that uh, the resources are there and also the necessary policies to, to, to address these uh, issues with, with uh, you know, um, why the, this child died and in care. We, we need to take care of that. Do you think the system then is in a bit of a state of transition? I know there is a big effort underway to, you know, make sure there are more Indigenous agencies involved in this. Is, is that going on? Is that work being done? Well, I think, you know, we, uh, we have a tripartite working group with the, the federal government in the province of BC, and uh, that is to, to implement Bill C-92, which would make sure that our children are taken care of by our own First Nations communities and agencies. But I, I think we need to make sure that if a First Nation is going to take over jurisdiction, that they have enough resources, that uh, they have enough uh, social workers, that they have enough uh, funding to to take care of the children, and and that's really important because it really, if you really think about it, taking over jurisdiction, it, it really lends itself to what we're trying to do, where First Nations are are, are sovereign, First Nations are self determining, as it states in the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, to take over our own affairs and make sure that we have uh, you know representation in terms of taking care of our own children and making sure that we have enough resources. Okay, so what you're saying is you can't just hand it off and say, oh, look, we're, we're handing it off now to these agencies. You have to make sure those agencies are set up for success. 
It's an, it's, yeah, it's not just agencies. It's First Nations uh, governance. It's, it's First Nations that are taking over the jurisdiction uh, to make sure that uh, not only having the, the enough resources of funding and what have you, but also the necessary policies and capacity to take care uh, of our children. Do you think, Chief TG, that it's happening now where those resources are not in place? Well, certainly right now, uh, there has been some movement with the federal government, as we've seen with kind of compensation uh, for, for children uh, who were in care post-1990. Uh, but right now, what we're in discussion, discussions right now is is the piece where there is going to be uh, resources as part of that $40 billion compensation. I, I believe it's about $19, 20000000000 billion for First Nations to take over child welfare jurisdiction. Uh, further to that, it is uh, the commitment from the provincial government to make sure that uh, there is um, uh, commitments to, to do that. And I think further to that is to make sure that beyond the five-year agreement, uh, year six, that there is a continuation of, of necessary and adequate funding for First Nations that are taking over the jurisdiction of our child welfare. Well, Chief TG, we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, you're welcome. Thank you. That's Chief Terry TG, Regional Chief of the BC Assembly of First Nations, making good points about how do we fix the child welfare system in this province. It's not about just, you know, delegating responsibility, letting First Nations take over in certain areas, but you have to make sure everyone is set up to succeed because in the end, it's still, you know, the, the province has to make sure that the children in this province are okay, are being looked after. Now, tomorrow, we do have a confirmation that we are going to be speaking with the Minister of Children and Family Development Mitzi Dean. We do have a lot of questions. Uh, so I look forward to that and hopefully you'll uh, tune in for that as well. This is Mornings with Simi. It's hard for all of us to handle increasing temperatures, right? When it's really hot, I don't know about you, I just don't do very well. But we can compensate, right? We can find shade, maybe find air conditioning. We can make an effort to cool down. Animals, Not so much. Now, making sure animals can handle heat helps us too, especially when it comes to farm animals like cattle. And there is a lot of work that is being done on this, and we're going to learn more about it right now. Dr. John Church is with us, Associate Professor in Natural Resource Science at Thompson Rivers University and BCIC Regional Innovation Chair in Cattle Industry Sustainability. Dr. Church, thanks for being here. Oh, good morning, Simi. It's really great to join you here in the studio today. I'm I know. pretty excited. So nice to have you in person. So tell me, how do you get into doing this? Like, How did you think that, you know what, we need to make cattle more heat sustainable? It actually goes back to 2017. Uh, California got hit by a really big heat dome, and they lost about 5,000 cattle in San Jose. And I started worrying, what if one of these heat domes starts to shift north. And, and then it did. We, and it did by 2021. So I wanted to make sure that we get ready because, you know, unlike our dairy cattle or chickens and pigs, our cows, our beef cows are outside. And lots of times they don't, you know, sometimes they have opportunity for shade. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they're trapped in a pen where they have no shade. And I, I started to worry if it can happen in California uh, we, we're generally five to ten years behind anything we see in California we might be seeing here. So that's when I embarked on this ambitious program with Qu- Kwantlen Polytechnic University to try and adapt our cattle or mitigate 
the future effects of climate change. Now, Ambitious is right, because I was reading about this, and essentially what you're trying to do is create a whole new type of cattle. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're trying to uh, introduce a new gene that it's a natural mutation that occurred on the island of St. Croix in the 1700s. It's, it's called the slick mutation from an animal called a centipole. And as luck would have it, I found embryos frozen in Alberta that had been sitting in a, in a tank of liquid nitrogen for 18 years. And I, I bought them and I resurrected them. <laughs> okay, so first we, of all, I'm feeling like Jurassic I know, Park going, here for a second. What the heck is going on? Also, what are the chances, like what were they doing? There's this whole story behind what these frozen embryos were doing there. Yeah, well, their idea was that they would use, they were creating Senepal Angus hybrids to sell to customers in Asia. They had found out about... The, uh, Angus, Canadian Angus, and then when they would basically move, uh, send Canadian Angus to Asia, they, like countries like Cambodia and Laos, they wouldn't do very well. So they created these hybrids, and fortunately, the, uh, they were still around. So originally, the animals come from St. Croix. They went to Texas, uh, frozen in a tank in Alberta, and now they're here in British Columbia. Okay, so you created cattle. I did, I did, Absolutely. Um, but what, what we're doing is, you know, the problem with the heat domes is that not only are we going to be faced with plus 50 Celsius, but because the climate change is causing the jet stream to oscillate, it's pulling down the cold air in the winter from Siberia that we normally didn't get. So remember in 2021, we had that enormous heat dome. Well, about three months prior, we also had one of the worst polar vortexes That's North right. America had ever seen. And it almost crashed the power grid all the way down to Texas. And you think it's hard to adapt when it's plus 50 here in, you know, here in British Columbia. It's equally bad when it's minus 20 in Texas. So Okay, so then if you got to work on it, how far along are you? Like how successful are you at this? Well, actually, we're, we've been remarkably successful. We, we've got actual animals on the ground. But what I've done is I've crossed them with some cold-hardy breeds. So we, we've crossed them with a Scottish Highland. Uh, if you've ever seen a Scottish Highland, it kind of looks like Chewbacca from Star I Wars with not. horns. Right. Okay. And they have a double hair coat, which allows them to handle the cold temperatures much better than conventional cattle. But yeah. the double hair coat isn't going to help them in the heat. No, but here's the, here's the great thing. With the slick mutation, they lose that hair coat and then they have a very light summer hair coat. So it's like they have a winter coat that they can take off. It, it, um, huh. What's really important about this is because of the droughts that we're having, uh, the price of feed has skyrocketed through the roof. And on every ranch, their number one input cost is probably their winter feed costs. We're finding these animals eat about 20 to 30% less. So not only are we making the animals more, more heat adapted in the summer, but we've got an animal potentially that, that can really save money uh, on their feed, winter feed bills right. in the wintertime. How far along are you then? Like, I'm sure there are farmers who are like, yes, sign me up for this. But that, that must be quite a process to get to that point. It, 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 it certainly is. You know, we're, we're into the third year of the project. Um, we have actual uh, animals, the centipole. Um, what do you call them? Well, I'm calling them, the, tentatively, we're calling it the climate master. So in, in Australia, <laughs> they, have a a, they have a new breed called the, the drought master. Uh, and it's, it's basically a composite breed or a synthetic, they call it, but, but it's an amalgamation of, of different already existing breeds, but it's a planned mating. So we basically have an animal that's as hardy. It's really a cross between, between the, either the um, Galloway or, or the Scottish Highland, which are the cold, hardy breeds, 
with our heat tolerant breed, the Senapol, with a little bit of red Angus mixed in to give us those carcass traits and those excellent steaks that our customers depend on. Now, this is the kind of work, though, I'm sure some people are like, oh, this is so scientific and we're messing with, but this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, crossbreeding animals. Yeah, so I, I want to make it real clear. We're not doing, there's no GMO involved. We're not gene editing. We're using natural breeding. Now, we're using uh, technologies that the industry's used for 25 years, like artificial insemination and in, even in vitro fertilization with a, uh, a boutique uh, veterinary clinic in Abbotsford that's been helping us to to speed up the natural breeding process. But um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the Angus breed in the United States is spending hundreds of thousands, even oh, probably millions to gene edit the Angus breed to really create the same mutation that, that we're, we, we've been able to achieve through natural breeding. Do you think this is something that we're going to see more of, Dr. Church, like not just for cattle, but for other farm animals? I, I think that we're going to have to look across the board uh, about the welfare of our livestock with the heat that's coming, even in the barns. You know, most of our barns are passively ventilated. I think we're going to, in the future, have to look at maybe, you know, Heaven forbid, but I think we're going to have to consider things like misting systems and air conditioning systems into the future. Here we sit in, in 2023, and we're already hitting close to 50 Celsius. You know, I live in the city of Kamloops at Thompson Rivers University. You know, we hit 49 Celsius. It had never been in 2021 past 41 Celsius. Like, we, we, we basically jumped seven degrees, yeah. right? Imagine where we're going to be in 2030 or even 2050. Okay, and that's so, not that far away. So are there, is there other work being done? Is there a race to get this done? Or would you find that there's a lot of researchers who are saying, hey, we need to look at this? You know, there's very little uh, work on heat stress being done at, at, here in Canada. There's a little bit of work uh, being done at U of A, where I'm also an adjunct professor. But uh, there is certainly work being done in the United States. But they're primarily focused on the Brahma breeds. These are the hump cattle. And there's two problems with that. They don't grow a winter hair coat. And also, you know... The ground is okay, but you sure wouldn't want to have a steak from a boss to kiss animal. <laughs> so you're telling us, Dr. Church, that your work is actually the bomb. I think so. It is the bomb. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so how far before you can say, all right, we can now, we have enough numbers, we can start selling these, we can get these into the system? Yeah. So I've been very lucky. Uh, I've, we've achieved a lot of breeding success, but mostly we've got females, I have very few bulls, so, but the minute... Why? How we, did that happen? Well, you know, we implanted the embryos and we, we, we didn't sex the animal uh, embryos ahead of time. And can you imagine, I've, my first five Climate Master cattle, all heifers. <laughs> so I said, if I could just get a bull. So you missed that one little yeah. thing. But you know, if you get a bull, so heifer can only produce you one calf. If you get a bull, and especially if you use artificial insemination, I could probably breed 2,000 cows off one bull. So if we can get that bull, we can get that busy, we, busy we can bull. get the technology to the, the industry very fast. Okay. And again, though, as you point out, this is standard practice in, in the farm animal kind of research community. Yeah, especially like, for example, in the dairy industry, you know, the, these technologies are used by the pure breeders in the beef industry. In the dairy industry, they don't do almost any natural breeding. It's all done by artificial insemination and embryo transplants. So, like I said, this is not new technology. This has been technology that's been around for close to 40, 50 years now. So, so then what do you say to people then, Dr. Do you go, hey, this is the future? Oh, I think I think so. Like this, you know, we're going to have to look at, you know, we're probably going to exceed 1.7 Celsius this year with El Nino. Um, we're going to that was the 
1.5 Celsius is what the Paris Accord said that we shouldn't go past, and we're probably going to hit 1.7 later this year. So I think we're going to have to look at, we're, we're well past, uh, we've got to look at mitigation. Right. So when now, in the next few years, if I'm driving by a cattle farm and I see a cattle with really long hair in the wintertime, and I go, that's weird. I go, hey, that's Dr. Church's work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, or if you see him with a slick hair coat. Um, you know, the nice thing with Canada is we have a lot of red Angus. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm quite worried about our friends in the United States because it's all black all the time, baby. It's unbelievable when I drive through the countryside in the United States how much black Angus there. I've seen there. that down the going down the I five to California. Yeah. that's all you see there. Yeah, imagine you know when it's when it's plus thirty five here in BC. Does anybody go outside with a black t shirt on? No. The problem with those Angus is they solar load. You know, the, the heat from the sun, you know, increases their temperature a phenomenal amount. I've learned so much this morning. I feel like I want to take your class. But thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you know, you're certainly welcome to. <laughs> I, I would welcome anyone to join our sustainable ranching program at TRU. And if you want to, I, I, if I could put in a plug for Go Jillian right Watt, 250-319-2367 or gwatt at tru.ca. We'd love to have you. We're teaching all, all kinds of things like regenerative agriculture and agritech and business management in our, our, our newly created diploma program at Thompson Rivers University. So. I love it. Thank you so much for your time today. Oh, thank you very much. That's Dr. John Church, Associate Professor in Natural Resource Science at Thompson Rivers University.